Hello, stranger. Welcome to the Lineup Podcast. If you're a fan of mystery, you've come to the right place. With each episode, we unearth a strange case from around the world. Today's episode, we join Eric Van Lusbader, whose thrilling work of fiction, The Ninja, becomes all too real when one passage turns up at a London crime scene, scrawled in blood across the wall. I spent almost a decade researching the ninja. It took a lot of effort because dealing with with ninjas is there are no written books. Ninjutsu was passed down from father to son only in a certain strata of Japanese society, the lowest strata of Japanese society, meaning outcasts, lower than peasants, people who were not involved in day-to-day society were called the Hinin. And they developed this martial art called ninjutsu, which is a composite martial art, unlike karate or aikido, which are very simple, straightforward, one philosophy martial arts. Ninjutsu is made up of uh, a bunch of different areas of martial arts that come from different countries. They came from China, from India and from the Himalayan states. So because of that, a great deal of ninjutsu is on the occult side. There are things about it that have nothing to do with any any other martial art in the world. Anyway, because of the composite nature of ninjutsu, ninjas had uh, a great deal of training in Tibetan, Nepalese, and, and Chinese philosophy. This is all in aid of the story I'm going to tell you, and it's all pertinent to it. The Ninja was, was published in 1980 and became an international sensation. It was a bestseller in every country in the world, and it was sold to 20th Century Fox to be a film. About five years after it was published, I got a call out on Long Island from the uh, Suffolk County Police Department. And somebody, um, the man who contacted me was very nice. He said he was wondering if I could come in to the police station and have a chat with them. And he didn't, the thing is he didn't sound like a cop at all. He sounded very cultured, very worldly. And I, I was, you know, I said, of course, I said, sure, what am I gonna say, no? But I, but the, the, I kept thinking, what, what could I possibly have done? I didn't even have a parking ticket, let alone anything that would interest the Suffolk County Police Department. Anyway, I made an appointment. He asked me to come in early in the day, which was also kind of odd, although it made sense afterwards. I drove to Hampton Bays, which is one uh, town 
west of where I live and went into the police station. And it was one of these big, you know, big rooms with, with dividers, dividing everybody was in, you know, one, one, one big room. The sergeant took me past all these uniformed cops to the back and I realized why the guy sounded, uh, the guy who contacted me sounded so cultured because he was a detective. So there were, um, I would say, about a half a dozen detective desks. Not all of them manned. I guess a lot of them were out doing whatever detectives do <laughs> during the day. Anyway, he sat me down and he asked me my name and, he, and my address and he asked me to prove my identity, which I did. And then he said, uh, would you mind coming with me? And I said, no. And he took me into um, a glass cubicle uh, with a desk and two chairs. And uh, I thought he was going to sit down uh, behind the desk, but he asked me to do that. And he said, there are some people in Scotland Yard in London who would like to talk with you. And I said, what about? And he said, they'll tell you. And he said, is it okay? Will you talk with them? And I said, sure. So he dialed the number, and I realized that's why he wanted me to come in early in the morning, because um, I, I guess at that time they were six hours different. I can't remember what six or seven hours different difference. Anyway, he called a, a specific number, got um, this person on the line, and handed me the phone. And I was handed over to a Scotland Yard detective. And he said, Mr. Lusbader, I we really need your help in something. And I said, whatever I can do, I will help you as to the best of my ability. And he said, okay, we've had, a week ago, we had a really horrendous murder in London. A very well-known businessman was murdered in his home. And I'm thinking to myself, what does that have to do with me? And he said, um, it's been a very vexing case. We've, we've a, a man like, like this victim had a number of enemies, it's to be expected in business. We've canvassed all of them and ruled them out positively as the perpetrator. He said what's, what's really vexing to us is that there was a great deal of blood at the scene of the crime. The man was stabbed numerous times and then his throat was slit. So he pretty much totally exsanguinated. On the wall, facing him, there was a blank wall, or a, maybe uh, the perpetrator took down a, a, a painting or a photo, and he scrawled uh, words on the wall. And these words, we, we believe, because we come from your book, The Ninja. And uh, I said, well, what words are they? And he said, this is what he wrote. He wrote, form is emptiness, and emptiness is form. What is emptiness? That is form. Perception, name, concept, and knowledge are also emptiness. There is no eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind. And I said immediately, well, that's uh, the Heart Sutra, um, which is also known in Japanese as, as the Hanyashin Kyo. And it's meant to in all martial arts, but especially in ninjutsu, to clear your mind, to get you into a state of mind, no mind. 
and he said, well, what is, what is mind, no mind? And I said, well, if you are in hand-to-hand -hand combat with someone, you're usually taught in, uh, the, in Western civilization to anticipate what your enemy is going to do. This is exactly the opposite of what needs to be done and what is taught in martial arts. Mind, no mind means you have to get to a state where you've let go of every anticipation, every preconception that you have in your mind about what this particular battle is going to be like. So that when you are attacked, you react in the moment without any preconception. And when you react in the moment, you can do, you can block any, any attack on you. And he said, well, this is really interesting because um, in your book, right after uh, this quote, which is used by the villain whose name is Saigo before he kills, what you write is, in darkness there is sin, in darkness there is death, sin negates spirit, and the killing of beings without spirit can only be looked on as an act of charity. Do you think, Mr. Lusbader, that this was what was in the killer's mind when he murdered this, this victim? And I said, well, you're asking me to, to try to uh, profile this, the perpetrator. And he said, that's exactly what we're asking you to do because really we've come up against um, dead ends everywhere we have looked. And uh, really, this is our, our last best hope to find the killer. And I said, first of all, I, I mean, I'm, you know, you've got to take whatever I say with a couple of grains of salt because I'm, I'm doing the best I can, but I'm not a professional profiler. And he said, I understand that. But th this person, the perpetrator, clearly read your book. It really affected him. And the way you write, it's clear that you get into your character's mind. So we're asking you to try to get into this person's mind and see if you can help us with any kind of ideas about his personality that you might have. And I said, well, the first thing I'm going to say to you is that I would be surprised if this person did not kill again. While this last line, beings without spirit can only be looked on as an act, killing of beings, without spirit can only be looked on as an act of charity. I don't think these two people are connected. That line would sort of seem to think it would, but I don't, I don't believe it is. I think he's gotten himself into a state of mind, no mind, a state of turning white into black, because after all, the Heart Sutra is a Buddhist prayer for a stage of reaching, trying or trying, attempting to reach Nirvana and you have to clear your mind for that. Uh, my villain, Saigo, turned this into a, a negative thing, well, not a negative, but, a, but turned white into black. And he created in his mind a space where he was able to kill without remorse. Now, if you think of as beings without spirit, everyone being beings without spirit, everyone, except you are beings without spirit, then yes, an act of a, a, a murder, murdering them is an act of charity because you're taking a person without spirit uh, out of the, the world. I think this guy is very smart and he's also very disturbed. And I think, you know, in the not too distant future, he's going to work himself up into this state again 
because he won't kill without working himself up into the state. It's clear because he he wrote these words on the wall, and they were they were not for you. They were for himself. And I think that that he I don't know how long it would take him to work himself up into killing again, but he certainly will. I said that's really as much as I can tell you, and I hope it 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 does help you. And he said. I think it will, and and we really appreciate this very much. And I said, can you keep me in the loop? And he, not he didn't laugh, but he said, well, this is Scotland Yard, so no, we can't. But it may be in the papers when we do find this murderer. I didn't follow it, frankly, after that. I was so busy with other things that I, I didn't look to see. And I in those days, um, it was difficult to read, get, you know, uh, London, like the Guardian or the London Now. Now, of course, all you need to do is go online, and you can get any any paper anywhere in the world. But in those days, you couldn't. So I don't I don't know what happened, but I feel good about the fact that I gave them a an avenue in which to pursue this horrible crime because the way they described it to me was really, really awful. If you didn't know better, if the, if there was wasn't that scroll on there, you would think it might be a a crime of passion because there was so much blood let loose. But um, this was totally dispassionate, and and that's a clear sign of a very, very disturbed mind, a psychopath who can use such violence, such overkill, if you, if you will, in venting whatever is disturbing him while keeping a really cool head. I mean, there, was, there, were, no, there were no fingerprints. There was no uh, sign of forced entry. It was really pretty much of a conundrum to them. So obviously he, and this is also what I said, obviously he had some kind of access to the apartment, whether he was possibly a doorman or uh, someone who had been given a key or, or someone who had made a key without anyone knowing. And I said, I, you know, people who are like this are very rigid. They will kill in exactly the same way. They will, will not vary their methodology. Uh, that's part of the psychology of, of psychosis. Um, you will repeat the same thing over and over again until you're caught or until you kill yourself or I don't know what happens. Uh, I, 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 I personally believe that uh, people like this are, are crying out to be caught that they can't live with themselves the way they are. And uh, the only way to handle things is to kill and keep killing to, until someone finds them and locks them up and puts them away. Brought to you by the Southern Thriller, A Swollen Red Sun by Matthew McBride. Set in rural Missouri, the Met capital of the United States, this novel takes you into the desperate situations of addicts and dealers deep in the rural woods of Gasconade County. McBride's writing is inspired by his former job as an assembly line worker and has been praised by author Daniel Woodrell and actor Charlie Sheen. Available now wherever ebooks are sold. Eric, thank you for sharing that story. That's quite quite a doozy. <laughs> my my <laughs> pleasure. Sitting at your Matthew. writing desk, yeah. you don't often anticipate 
a call from Scotland Yard. No, no, you don't. That was the last thing I would have thought of. Okay. I do want to get far more into that case, but I want to start with uh, your fascination with Japanese culture. The ninja cycle is something you're very well known for. It's clearly something that is of interest to you. Curious if you could expand a little bit on what attracts you to, to martial arts and Japanese culture. Sure, I, I um, actually came to uh, came to it through Japanese woodblock prints. Mm. Um, my mom, who was always giving me unusual presents for my birthday, she was a, um, an administrator, a teacher administrator. But then after she retired, she worked for the Metropolitan Museum of Art, so mm. she was very involved in that. She bought me two books of Japanese woodblock prints, and I fell in love with them. And uh, I asked her where I could see them in person, and she talked to her supervisor, who gave me the name of this place called the Ronin Gallery, which is still around. And uh, I went up there and became friendly with the owners. They were a couple, uh, and Herb really took me under. I was uh, really, uh, when I started that, I was really in college. Mm-hmm. Took me under his wing, and I started collecting Japanese woodblock prints. And I realized I was a very well-educated uh, human being. I knew nothing about Japanese society, so I started reading about it, Japanese history, I should say. And uh, hanging out at the Ronin Gallery was very fortuitous for me because it was a nexus of Japanese Americans and Japanese who who were emigrating to to America. And they would come and drink tea and talk. And at one point, I I overheard them talking about ninja, and I had no idea what that was, and they, they told me. Well, there were no books about it, nothing except what they, what they told me. And uh, they, tur- they turned me on to some people who knew more about, about ninja. And I started getting fascinated by the fact that <clears throat> Japanese culture is, is a real dichotomy of beauty and, and aggression. Mm. And even the samurai, the best samurai, were taught how to paint, how to... Um, do calligraphy, uh, how to dance. Anyway, I, at, at, I just the minute they started talking about ninja, I got excited about the idea of writing about one. And uh, I had been reading this wonderful book-length interview of, of Alfred Hitchcock, who was one of my favorite film directors. And um, when they came to North by Northwest, which was one of my favorite Hitchcock films, Hitch said that um, he got the idea, um, he was looking at a blank piece of paper, and he was about to write something. He was writing with a uh, fountain pen, and the fountain pen dribbled, hit that page. It wasn't lined page, it was a blank, totally blank page. And he thought, that's, that's what I want to have in, in North by Northwest. Mm-hmm. I want to have a really day-to-day dull scene with a day-to-day, a dull kind of uh, guy, oh, I'll make him an, an advertising executive. And he's in this hotel to meet his mommy. And what happens? Somebody calls out his name for a phone, and he get, gets up, and it's the wrong name, or the he's the wrong person, and people think that he's a spy. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when I read that, I thought, well, that's that's the idea for the ninja, you know, mm-hmm. Drop him down into New York City, which is, you know, it's it's a jungle, but it, but it's a civilized, you know, it's about as civilized a place as you can find. You know, you think about the grids of Manhattan and people going to work and going home for work and doing their daily things. And you drop this 
sort of agent of chaos, which is what I, th I thought the ninja was. You drop him down in the middle of that, and what's going to happen? Mm -hmm. And that's how I got the idea to write uh, the ninja. I had been writing fantasy books before then, and I wrote six fantasy books in a series, and then went right on to write the ninja over the summer. Uh, didn't tell my agent, just handed it to him. And um, he calls me about 10 days later and he says, this is a big book. And I, I misunderstood him. I thought, I said, well, you know, I, I guess I can cut it down. And he said, no, that's not what I mean. I, he said, I, this, is, this is a best-selling novel. I want, want your permission for, for, to, for me to Xerox it was Xerox. Right. Xerox the manuscript, you know, a number of times because I want to do a multiple submission. Yeah. And I said, sure. And we were turned down by about 15 different publishing companies. In those days, there were a lot of publishing mm -hmm. companies. Uh, we got one offer from uh, Random House, but it was kind of a wishy-washy offer. In the meantime, he had given the book to uh, someone at, at Grafton Books in, in, in England, and... Um, he read it on the plane over to London, and he called Henry. We got to London. He was so excited. He said, I'm halfway through the book. I want it. Three days later, he gave us $200,000. This was in 1979. That yeah. was huge. I mean, we still didn't have a deal here. Yeah. And my agent kept saying to me, look, there's a company called M. Evans, and they love the book to death. They really want to have a meeting with you. I said, okay. Uh, let's have we'll have lunch. We came to lunch uh, with the publisher and the editorial director, and they had gone out to a Madison Avenue po advertising company and asked them to make up uh, to create a advertising campaign for the Ninja. They had billboards, you know, miniature billboards and full page ads and what. They were fantastic. Absolutely knocked me off my pins, mm. and I said yes, and that that was it. The minute, um, the minute they started word, I mean, it just it just started snowballing. Yeah, and when did you get the call from Scotland Yard? We're talking 1979 is when you're first talking with the London publishers. Yeah, that well, the book was published in 1980. Um, so probably 85, okay. I would say. I mean, at that point, you're, you're well on your way. The series is uh, obviously seeing all sorts of success worldwide. Right. And you receive this call in the morning to uh, speak with Scotland Yard about a strange case. Just, I, just, well, I didn't know with Scotland Yard until I got there. They, didn't, yeah, yeah. they were very mysterious. They wouldn't right. tell me anything. Yeah. I, you know, because I said, you know, when they called me, when the detective from Suffolk County Police Department called me, I said, What's this about? And he said, we'd like you to come in and talk with us. Mm. Well, that's pretty mysterious, you know, when Same they're right. not, you know. I mean, to say, I, I, honestly, I really wasn't frightened because there was nothing um, overbearing in what he, he was very kind and yeah. very, you know, solicitous. And he said, would you, you know, he said, would you mind coming in and talking with us? And he said, it's rather important. Mm. I'm a law-abiding guy. I don't. I don't. <laughs> I don't run afoul of the law. That's the last thing I want. Uh -huh. So I. I couldn't really. My mind was blank. I uh -huh. was in mind no mind because uh -huh. I. I wasn't here. anticipating anything because there was nothing uh -huh. to anticipate. Sure. I was so wide open that uh -huh. I was a total blank. Yeah. And um, you know, the minute I saw that it wasn't a uniformed cop, 
I started, you know, the wheels started spinning and I started thinking, well, what really, what, this is, this can't have anything to do with me as a suspect. Right. What is it? You know, and um, again, he was mysterious until he took me into that back room, into that, you know, the the closed off room, closed the door. And he said, "Uh, there are people in Scotland Yard who want to talk to you. Would you mind talking to them? I mean, you know, I guess I could have said, really, uh, I don't want to, but (laughs) why would I, why would I, why would I do that? Yeah. You know, but, but they were kind and, and made it very clear that this was something that was, I was doing of my own volition, Hmm. you know, not that, Hmm. you know, we need you to do this. You don't want to do it tough. We want you to, you know, you have to do it. Um, I, I mean, I was, you know, first of all, you know, there were so many things going through my head. First of all, the shock of, what this guy was telling me, the details yeah. of this murder. Um, <laughs> the first thing that went through my mind was, well, I wasn't even in London <laughs> last week. Okay, um, no, I mean, you know, but I mean that, you know, that just, you know, it's, it's like a knee jerk response, yeah. you know. Um, but I mean, the, the horrendous nature, I mean, it wasn't just yeah. a murder. Right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, which happened all the time in every big city. Yeah. Um, I guess really they happen less in London than they happen you know, in New York, mm-hmm. but, um, I mean, this was pretty horrendous. Yeah. Um, and they were really at their, at their wits end, huh. um, as to what to do. They were kind of, you know, as much as, I mean, they were calm, but you could he- hear the kind of franticness under, underneath because of the nature of the murder. Yeah. Um, they were really, really concerned about finding this person. As what, quickly as possible. What did it feel like knowing that that brutal killing was connected to your writing? Obviously, you're not at fault, but to have your written work in some way connected to such an act, that must have sparked all sorts of different emotions in your mind. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't remember a yeah. feeling. Um, I mean, you know, I, I didn't feel guilty because right. I wrote what I wrote. I mean, right. you know, it's out there. It's not like I wrote uh, here's here's how to here's how to get into somebody's house and kill a guy in three yeah. easy you know three easy lessons. It's not mm-hmm. like that at all, um, you know. And I wonder about you know you watch these TV shows where things are explicitly laid out mm. uh, crimes, and you think, well, what if somebody you know did that? Mm. Nobody seems to be concerned about that. Um, I think what was disturbing was the psychological nature of it. Interesting. Um, disturbing to me in as much as I had created a real psycho in yeah. my book. Uh, and, and now I was confronted by a real psycho in the, in the, not in the flesh, but in real life. Right. And that was, I mean, it was really bizarre and, and eerie. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I went home and, and told my wife about it and I really, couldn't work for the rest of the day. I mean, I was really kind of, all I could do was think about, you know, uh, my creation and this, and this person and, and, um, the connection between the two. Um, and it was, it was also, um, disturbing that somebody that so, um, psychologically, impaired would be reading my book and getting something out of it. I mean, that was, that was kind of difficult to come to terms with. Sure. 
But I mean, there are all kinds of people out there. You know, the book had sold, I don't know, how tens of hundreds of millions mm -hmm. of copies. You know, you don't have control over who's going to read it or whatever and how, what they're going to take from it. Um, but, you know, that, that was um, more than offset by, you know, a number of years later when I, when I wrote um, Black Heart, which was about Cambodia and uh, Vietnam, I got a ton of letters, and this is before, not emails, but letters from um, veterans of the Vietnam War, mostly, interestingly, gunship crews. And they all more or less said the same thing, that they, when they were in the war, when they were in country, they really didn't know what they were fighting for. They didn't know why they were there. And after they read Black Heart, they understood why they were there. Hmm. And that was the most amazing feeling um, I, I, I've ever had connected with my writing, hmm. other than when my you know, books got, got sold and, and sold to the movies. And you know, that that's, was pretty exciting. And when um, you know, the Ninja got, came to number one and was 24 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list, but, but, I mean, this had a different kind of component to it. Yeah. I mean, it touched me in a much deeper place. Yeah. You know, it's great to have success, and I'm not knocking it by, by any means and, and, at all. I mean, I love that. But th this had a more profound effect on me uh, to know that what I, was, what I had written had actually helped people. And it sort of offset that, that other feeling that I had um, about this, this murderer in London. Right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's it's the yin and yang of life, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And did the murder case affect going forward in your writing? Did it affect the way you approach writing particular villains and creating no characters? There no, I never thought. Okay. Of, no, I never thought about it again. Frankly, yeah. um, I would have liked to have followed it, but being told that I couldn't. Yeah. Uh, what was I to do? Yeah. You know, so I, I really pretty much forgot about it. I mean, it was always in the back of my head, but mm -hmm. as far as it affecting my writing, no, not at all. Okay. And did you look up the case afterward? Have you since followed to see? I tried. I tried. Um, I looked up on the internet. I um, unsolved uh, murders in London uh, in the two decades around, you know, uh, the, the, the 80s, I mean, the mid-80s to the early 90s, uh, and there was nothing, hmm. nothing at all that was in any way, shape, or form similar. Hmm. Um, and while it's true um, that a lot of what they, what this detective from Scotland Yard told me, I'm, I'm almost positive, was not leaked to the press, um, there just wasn't anything that seemed, um, no businessman, no, there wasn't anything that seemed likely. Um, I did look up, you know, ninja murder or <laughs> things like that, but, there, you know, that there was nothing, hmm. nothing at all. So um, I would, I like to think that it was solved, Yes. that they did, that I, I helped in some way, and that they, they did find this person, because I'd hate to think that he kept on, that more than one person was, was killed. Um, you know, you don't want to, you know, wouldn't want anyone killed. Sure. Um, but this had already happened, and I was really praying that that uh, there wouldn't be a second or third. Huh. And I think 
I'm, I'm hopeful that there wasn't. Great. Eric Lesbader, thank you for sharing your story with us today. My pleasure, Matthew. Great. Eric Van Lesbader is the author of the Nicholas Lanier series, including The Ninja, The Miko, and The White Ninja, as well as numerous international bestsellers featuring Jason Bourne, including The Bourne Legacy, The Bourne Betrayal, The Bourne Deception, and The Bourne Retribution. Learn more at ericvanlesbader.com. The Lineup Podcast is written and produced by the Lineup staff and myself, Matthew Thompson. Special thanks to Eric Van Lusbader and our partners in crime at Open Road Media. Our audio producer is Chai Dingari. Background music is by Audioblocks. And our theme music is by Absofacto at absofacto.com. For more information on the stories we present, visit our website, thelineup.com. That's the-line-up.com, where murder and mayhem is delivered daily. Be sure to sign up for our newsletter as well, which brings you five mysteries to your inbox every week. This is Matthew, and that does it for me. Until next time, keep it weird. Weird.